Amen. Uh, Good morning to you. If uh, you have your Bibles, I invite you to meet me in Isaiah chapter 8. We're going to go into a um, Christmas series for the next several weeks leading up to Christmas and our Christmas Eve service. And uh, I want to invite you to Christmas Eve. We'll have two candlelight services at 3 o'clock and at 5 o'clock this year. And uh, we're going to spend some time in the book of Isaiah uh, leading us up to that. Specifically, we'll read from verses 11 through 22. Um, For those of you who may not know me, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I have certainly the honor and privilege of serving as the lead pastor here at FAC. And if you're newer here, I extend a warm welcome to you. I would love to meet you after service. I'm always available um, and uh, would invite you to come up and introduce yourself if you've got a few minutes to spare. Um, I encourage you guys to put Christmas Eve services on your calendar. Unfortunately, we couldn't have it last year because of the pandemic. We uh, feel good about this year hosting the services, and we'd encourage you to invite a friend or family member as well. Um, Also, it's of note to let you know that we're going to continue our annual tradition at that service of taking up what we call the Magi Offering. Uh, the Magi offering is really for the people that call FAC home and uh, wish to participate in glorifying God around the Christmas season by giving. Um, and, and the Magi offering, the gifts that are given towards the Magi offering, 100% of it goes directly to people in need um, throughout the following year. And, and so um, if that's something that you want to participate in, once again, there's no obligation. It's just really an invitation for those of you who love to glorify God through your giving um, to come prepared to the Christmas Eve service to give to that end. Um, You can also give online for the Magi offering as well. Um, For for this morning, let's go ahead and read from God's Word. Once again, we're in Isaiah chapter 8. I'm going to start in verse 11, and we'll read through the end of the chapter, uh, verse 22. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people Uh, calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but let the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary, and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap, and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem." And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs importance in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward, and they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Would you pray with me? Dear Father, as we come into the Christmas season, might your spirit impress on our hearts the need for a Savior. As we marvel at the birth of a coming King, King Jesus, let us understand why we needed him to come in the first place. As we look to your word, 
would we see your word in the flesh of Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray these things even. Amen. If you grew up in the United States of America and you picked up a copy of the Declaration of Independence, having been educated in elementary school, having been brought up understanding the history of America, the Declaration of Independence as you read it, although it was written hundreds of years ago, would not be terribly difficult for you to understand. Um, the, The opening sentence of the Declaration reads this way, when in the course of human events, It becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with one another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. Perhaps you've never read the Declaration of Independence before, but as you hear these opening words from Thomas Jefferson about separation, once again, having learned of the history, you know exactly what he's talking about. You know the context in which it was written. You know what kind of separation is occurring. You know who is separating from who. And for the most part, you know the reasons why the separation had to occur. Likewise, In Scripture, as text, as a document, as ancient document that we read from and study from every week, uh, the Scriptures were written in response to actual events that took place in history. And I alluded to this last week, and I'll say it again because of how critical it is, that we must understand the history uh, that these words were written in response to. And, and so before we get into actually studying the verses, I feel the need to give a little bit of a, of a history lesson. So if history is not your forte, I apologize. Just bear with me for a few minutes as I kind of catch you up to speed with the cultural and political events that are happening around what Isaiah writes here. Uh, the book of Isaiah, it, it comes uh, in the Old Testament. In the, old, the entire Old Testament, is several different books compiled into one that speak to a relationship, primarily the relationship between God and Israel, a nation, a nation that descended from a man named Abraham that God had made a covenant with, an agreement, a promise with, that he would be their God and they would be his people. And that's the, the entire Old Testament talks about this relationship between God and his covenant people, this nation called Israel. Now, around 930 BC, right, 10th century BC, the kingdom of Israel actually divides into two separate kingdoms. There's what we call the northern kingdom, and there's the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom kept the name Israel, and the southern kingdom would actually go on to be called Judah. Now, fast forward about two centuries, 200 years after the separation of Israel into two different kingdoms, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel actually formed an alliance with another nation that was north of them called Syria. So you had Syria and you had Israel, and they decided to turn on Judah. They, they, they wanted to overtake the southern kingdom. They, they wanted to attack Judah. Now, at this time, there is a king on the throne in Judah, in the southern kingdom, in the capital, which is Jerusalem. You might be familiar with Jerusalem. His name is King Ahaz. 
You can read all about him in 2 Kings 16. Now, King Ahaz is not a good guy. He is actually an evil man. He is an evil king who did not rule Judah according to God's ways. And the barrage on Jerusalem from this northern alliance, from Israel and and Syria, was actually meant to serve as a wake-up call for King Ahaz, that he was not a godly man, right? Now, obviously, this attack, this pending attack, spelled impending doom, and it stirred up a lot of fear in the heart of King Ahaz, and it stirred up a lot of uh, fear in the hearts of of all of Judah. If you were to go back to Isaiah chapter 7, it says that when King Ahaz heard about this alliance that was forming, that was going to come and attack them, it says that the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. There's just this massive gust of fear that overtakes them, and it produces just this intense anxiety about the situation and the situation. And so in chapter 7, Upon hearing about this northern alliance, uh, God actually sends the prophet Isaiah into this situation, into this political uh, atmosphere. Now, just to clear up any confusion about prophets, the prophet's primarily, primary role was not necessarily to predict the future. The primary role of the prophet was actually to be a messenger of God an intermediary of sorts, uh, to, to, to declare God's word to his people and, and to speak to the world on behalf of God. And this did sometimes include uh, predictions about the future, but that wasn't their main job. It was purely as a messenger of God, speaking God's word on his behalf. And so Isaiah, as a messenger of God, goes to King Ahaz, and Isaiah tells Ahaz not to fear. He says, don't let your heart be faint, Ahaz. You don't have to worry about those guys because those guys are, are going to be wiped off the map in a short amount of time. This is going to be a non-issue. This will not be a, a problem. And, and Isaiah essentially tells Ahaz, he tells him, trust God. Put God to the test. Me- meaning, watch what God will do. See what God is capable of. Wait on the Lord. I know Ahaz that this seems like a pretty hopeless situation, uh, but God is in the business of redeeming hopeless situations. I don't doubt what's going on, but watch what God will do. And we find out in Isaiah chapter 7, and once again also in 2 Kings 16, that Ahaz decides not to put his trust in God. But instead, he enlists the help of another nation a rising empire from the way north called the Assyrian Empire. Different than Syria, it's further north than Syria. It's the Assyrian Empire. And this is what Ahaz does. He goes to the temple treasury in Jerusalem. He takes out all of the gold and the silver that was actually devoted to God and God's work. And he sends it up to Assyria. And he says, here's payment. Are you guys willing to go and take care of our little situation for us? Can you attack this northern alliance? Can you help us out? And the Assyrians do. Right? They were probably going to do it anyway. They take the payment and they end up overtaking this northern alliance, both Syria and Israel. 
Now we'll finish the history lesson at the end of our time today, uh, but you should know that this does not end well for Judah. Uh, this is uh, ends up what appears initially to be a situation that they've gotten out of. It, it ends up not being a good situation. But for now, we're going to enter the passage with that as the backdrop. Uh, Isaiah writes from Jerusalem during that time period, and Jerusalem was like a powder keg uh, of an atmosphere at this point, ready to explode at any moment. There was international collapse in their region all around, hostility around every corner. There was political upheaval and turmoil. This was just a, a, a such a tumultuous period of civil unrest. And everybody within Jerusalem was suspicious of everyone and trusted nobody, which produced really a mass hysteria within the nation of Judah itself. In the passage that we read, God instructs Isaiah how he and his followers should respond to all of this. How should they walk in the midst of all the hysteria and the political unrest? And so let's walk through this together, starting in verse 11. Isaiah writes, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people. Right off the bat, it's critical to note that the Lord spoke to Isaiah. The Lord spoke to Isaiah. It's by God's word that Isaiah feels God's strong hand upon him. In other words, it's through God's word that Isaiah feels a compelling force of God at work in his life. Isaiah's direction, his course of action, does not come about because he's enlightened to some sort of secret knowledge. It doesn't come about because of a supreme intelligence that Isaiah has. It doesn't come out because he has greater political insight. No, his course of action is dictated by the fact that he comes under the divine inspiration of God's word. The Lord spoke. And what did he say to Isaiah? He warned him not to walk in the way of this people. Basically, God says, don't walk in their path. Don't follow in their footsteps. Don't do what they do. Don't think how they think. And don't act like how they act. So right here in verse 11, God, what he's doing, he is setting Isaiah apart from this group of people, the, the, the masses in, in, in Jerusalem and, and the other disciples. He, he essentially creates a differentiation between two kinds of people, two different ways. And the rest of the passage describes the two groups of people and, and, and they're different from these other people. And so we'll travel through this together. First in verses 12 through 13, we come across two different fears. Two fears. God tells Isaiah, do not call conspiracy all that the people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. It's fascinating, especially since the dawn of the internet and social media in our own culture, how much attention and energy is given over to conspiracy theories. 
to conspiracy. In the genesis, the, the beginnings of outcries, of conspiracy, are always a spirit of fear. That's how they come about because we clamor for an explanation when we can't see the full picture. And it often sends us into a tailspin of hopeless desperation. We want to be in the know because it's so unsettling. It's so unsettling to be out of control. It's so unsettling to not have all the answers. And so we come up with these mind-boggling ideas because I just, I have to be, I have to know. I have to know the truth. Now, this isn't to say that we, we don't have an opinion or notice even that something is a little off kilter. But it is to say that as people living under the authoritative word of God, that we don't preoccupy our time with such nonsense. We do not need to be consumed with the anxiety of such events and their causes, and their outcomes. This is, this is a call for Isaiah to keep himself from the fear-ridden clamor and noise of the people. God tells and warns Isaiah, don't, don't add to the mass hysteria happening in the streets. Instead, be a calm. Be a peace within it. And the way he does that, the way he remains sober-minded is not by fearing what the other people fear, but instead by fearing God. God tells him, let the Lord be your dread. That seems like kind of an odd statement, doesn't it? Let the Lord be your dread. I don't have to worry about what the nations will do. The nations will do what the nations will do. If I, if I don't honor them, I don't need to worry about them. What I need to worry about is what God will do if I don't honor Him because He is far more powerful than the nations. Too often we fear what human beings are capable of in this society as opposed to what God is capable of. But if we fear God, we do not need to fear anything else. Psalm 46 is an excellent illustration when the psalmist writes that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. What the psalmist is saying is that the earth is literally falling apart between our eyes. Figuratively and literally, the, the, the world is collapsing. The mountains are going into the ocean, are falling into the sea. But I don't need to fear because God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. The, the psalmist later on in that psalm says, though the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He, meaning God, utters his voice. The earth melts. You see, the nations raged then. And they're still raging today. So we should not fear the nations, but we should fear the one who can melt the earth just by uttering his voice. And when Isaiah fears God instead of what the people fear, something wonderful happens in that his perception of God changes. He perceives God differently than the other people. 
the object of one's fear actually determines how they relate to God. In verses 14 through 15, we now have two, what I would call, perceptions. We had two fears. Now we have two perceptions. When we fear God, interestingly enough, as a result, he will become a sanctuary, a holy place. If Isaiah properly focuses on God, regardless of what the, the, the danger surrounds him, Isaiah will then have a place of security and confidence. There will be holiness. The Holy One will provide a holy place where the one who has focused on God is at peace. God engulfs those who fear him, draw them into his presence, not to destroy them, but to protect them, to give them peace. God's presence is the sanctuary from the storm. Yet those who don't fear God do not perceive God as a sanctuary, but actually as a rock. Now, now most times in Scripture, the analogy of God being a rock portrays refuge or a strong foundation, but that's not the case here. Here it's used much differently. Here he's called a rock of stumbling. This is what he means by the illustration. It's as if one is walking down a path. And unbeknownst to the the journeyman walking down the path, that path leads to destruction and that path leads to, to death. And there's a giant rock that has been put across the path in order to keep the traveler from danger. And for whatever reason, the traveler doesn't heed the warning of the rock and tries to proceed anyway, and they stumble over the rock. They are broken over the rock as they trip and fall and hurt themselves, which results in people actually hating the rock for getting in the way. Judah and Israel, both kingdoms, saw God as a rock to stumble over. Isaiah says it in the verse, right, that it's a stone of offense to both houses of Israel, more literally the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. It's a stone to strike, Isaiah says. What that means is because the stone got in the way, they lash out of it. They hate the rock. To them, the presence of God does not mean sanctuary. It means frustration. It's frustrating because it got in the way. And here's the profound truth found within these verses, that God's holy presence is an inescapable experience. We'll get into this further on Christmas Eve, but back in chapter 7, when King Ahaz refused to ask God for a sign, refused to ask God to come to his aid, God said, you know what, Ahaz? I'm going to give you a sign anyway. I'm going to do it anyway, and this is what it's going to look like. Isaiah 7:14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. God says, I'm sending someone. And his name is Emmanuel. And in that word, Emmanuel, that name literally means God with us. It implies God's presence. And God with us has universal application. No matter what you do, 
And no matter how you think or what you believe, you will experience the presence of God. He is unavoidable. But many are tempted to believe that the unbeliever is miserable and frustrated because of an absence of God. But the truth of this scripture says, no, in fact, they are miserable and they are frustrated because he is present, but they do not regard him as holy. They are frustrated because they are walking a certain way and God is glaringly in their way. He is in the path. And so their options are either to ignore the rock and stumble over it anyway, or to strike it, to to lash out of it. It's the same God that we experience. He does not change. He is still fully holy in all his ways. But how we respond to his holiness dictates whether we view him as a sanctuary or if we view him as a stumbling stone. Two perceptions, two fears, two perceptions. And then in verses 16 through 17, we have two words, two words or two consultations. Verses 16 and 17, Isaiah writes, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. When Isaiah talks about binding up the testimony to seal the teaching, right? he's talking about God's word. And he's essentially saying, this is official. This is authoritative. The word that God has spoken to me, is it's got the seal on it. And in the midst of the crashing world around him, Isaiah consults God's word. And then it's remarkable. And then he says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. For God to hide his face implies judgment, right? It's a sign of disfavor towards uh, Israel and Judah. And so uh, as Isaiah watches the nation crumble around him, his own nation crumble around him, having treasured God's word, he waits. Now stillness and waiting are not typically our first response to national crisis. Typically, we try and take things into our own hands, like King Ahaz. But if we know his word, and we regard God as holy, and we find him as our sanctuary, we can wait on him and hope in him in the midst of disaster, knowing that he will come through on his promises for his people. Promises that he has given to us in his word. The people, however, the other ones in Jerusalem, they don't consult God's word, right? Having rejected God, having stumbled over him, they're forced to look somewhere else for their answers. So in verse 19, we see that they inquire of the mediums and the necromancers. There were people in Judah who were turning to sorcery and spiritists for their answers. They sought out people who claimed to communicate with the dead. And Isaiah scoffs at the absurdity of this. He's saying, are you kidding me right now? You're looking for life among the dead. The dead doesn't know about life. You won't find your answers there because it will only lead to more death and more darkness. 
Isaiah explains in verse 20 that those people don't speak according to God's word because they have no dawn. They have no dawn. I quoted show tunes last week. I'll do it again this week. Uh, my daughter and I uh, watched that Annie Live TV special. Uh, I think it was on NBC. And if you're familiar with the musical, it's a musical of perpetual hope, right? As little orphan Annie, who just lives this miserable life, sings that when I'm stuck in a day that's gray and lonely, when I'm stuck in a day that's gray and lonely, even though times are rough, even though today is hard, I just stick out my chin and grin and say, the sun will come out tomorrow. That is her hope, that the sun will come out tomorrow. And Isaiah writes, if you don't fear God, and if he is your stumbling block, if they don't speak according to his word, it's because they have no dawn. The sun will not come out tomorrow. The sun doesn't rise for them, and they do not have a future to look forward to. This is quite a depressing thought. And it's important to note that this is, this is not just an individual experience, um, but these final verses in our, in our passage actually speak to a national collapse that's to come in the near future for Judah. As Israel, both kingdoms turn from God, God hides his face from them. He, he, he essentially turns them over to their wishes. He gives them over to us and says, is this what you really want? Then, then you should have it. And they end up paying for it. The, to finish the history lesson from the beginning of our time, King Ahaz is the king of Judah. Once again, he pays the Assyrians to travel south and overtake this northern alliance. And the Assyrians do that. They, they take Ahaz's money that he stole from the temple treasury in Jerusalem. And the Assyrians just wallop on the northern alliance. Now, Ahaz in this moment is probably thinking, well, I got out of a close one here, and hey, I didn't need God after all. Isaiah was wrong. Look at what I did. I managed to finagle myself out of the situation. I was able to throw money at it, and now my problem is solved. The problem is that the Assyrians decided that they didn't need Jerusalem and that they weren't going to stop there. And so they march on Jerusalem. They overtake Judah as well. And they overtake all of Judah with the exception of the capital city of Jerusalem because Jerusalem was so well fortified. They could have honestly gone in and taken it. They were powerful enough, but it was so well fortified that they decided not to march in there, but actually lay siege to it, right? They encircle the city. They cut off their supply line completely. Right? They could have attacked, but it would have come at a cost. And so they have a different strategy. They basically say, well, let's just cut off all of their resources and we'll wait them out. Right? And so all imports, all exports completely stop. Right? There's nothing coming into Jerusalem. There's nothing going out of Jerusalem. And during this time, there is just rampant disease and there is intense famine. And it is a famine that is so bad that the people in Jerusalem resort to cannibalism because they were so hungry. This is about as dark as it'll get for Isaiah's contemporaries. 
And Isaiah, our passage, he actually wrote before this, but Isaiah paints a picture of what this will look like for them in the final verses of the passage before it happens. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and speak contemptuously. To speak contemptuously in this passage, uh, in this verse, means to curse. In their rage, they are cursing. And who do they curse? Well, they curse their king because their answer wasn't found in politics. Because King Ahaz, the national leader, could not save them. They curse their God because he is a stumbling block. Because God had the audacity as the creator of all things to call them to adhere to his will. How dare he? Instead, they expected God to bend to their will, so they curse him as well. And then in verse 22, having cursed God, they will look to the earth for their answers. They return to nature. They look to created things. They try and put their hope and trust in the things of this earth, created things, only to find more distress and more darkness, the gloom of anguish. There is no enjoyment for those who don't regard God's holiness. And then Isaiah writes that through this event, they will be thrust into thick darkness. Almost to say, you think this is bad? You think the political threat from the Northern Alliance and the political unrest is darkness? You haven't even seen darkness like you will on that day. You haven't even experienced darkness, true darkness, like you will if you don't fear God. And that is where the passage ends for this week. Merry Christmas. You're going through the whole passage and it wouldn't be a surprise if you've stuck through this and you're like, wait a minute, isn't Christmas supposed to be merry and peace on earth, goodwill to men? Where's the joy? Where's the peace? Where's the merry? This this is all just glooming darkness. What on earth does this possibly have to do with Christmas? I thought we were doing a Christmas series. Well, let's connect the dots. The glooming darkness that looms over Jerusalem in our passage still looms in the world today. There is a thick darkness of the world still today for the very same reason. And that the world is broken. The the, the world is broken. There, There is darkness and we need a light. And Isaiah will go on. We'll get there, I promise, in Isaiah 9 that there is a great light. But before we get to the light, we must understand that we are drowning in darkness. Christmas is the story of the great light that comes in the darkness, a Savior. But we must remember why we need a Savior to begin with. John Piper, in a New Advent devotional, writes that Christmas is an indictment before it's a delight. If you don't need a savior, you don't need Christmas. Christmas, he writes, will not have its attended effect until we feel desperately the need of a savior. 
And that Savior is Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. God said, you wouldn't come to me. You couldn't come to me because you were lost in the dark. And so I am going to come to you. And to return to the beginning of our time today, while these chapters in Isaiah were written in response to actual events that took place in history, his words are but a foretelling, a foreshadowing of Christ in the New Testament. Everything that can be said of God in this passage is said of Christ in the New Testament. Peter in 1 Peter writes, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is our sanctuary, our holy place. 1 Corinthians and Matthew 21 directly state that Christ is a stumbling block. And so we see that while Isaiah writes about one specific story in his time, there is actually a greater story at play. And there is a greater story at play because there is a greater author at hand than Isaiah. While all scriptures are physically, were physically recorded by human hands in response to real events, what sets scripture apart from any other document in the history of humanity. What sets it apart is that these words are inspired and breathed out by God himself, the Holy Spirit. What this means, what that means is that these passages were written by human beings, but such words were only brought to their minds under the powerful supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit. It would be like you writing something on my behalf. You write the words, but I am going to tell you physically what to write and do not place any word differently than what I say. Not a single word in these scriptures is misplaced. And as you read each word that God inspired these men to write, you will come to find that the entire purpose of each word there is to reveal himself to us. This is God's way of telling us who he is and what he has done for us. And the ultimate revelation of God came through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. God took on human flesh so that we may see who he is. And every passage of scripture leads to him. Even a passage like the one we studied today that was written a full eight centuries before Jesus would ever physically walk the earth. Charles Spurgeon, who was a famous 19th century preacher, one time recalled the story of an old minister who heard a sermon by a young man. And when the old minister was asked by the young man what he thought of the sermon, the old man was reluctant to answer, but eventually under compulsion said, well, if I must tell you, I did not like it at all because there was no Christ in your sermon. And the young man was puzzled and he said, well, no, because I did not see that Christ was in the text. And the old minister says, oh, but do you not know that from every little town and village in England, there is a road leading to London? Wherever, whenever I get a hold of the text, I say to myself, there is a road from here to Jesus Christ, and I mean to keep on his track until I get to him. Christmas is a cosmic event 
in which God sends the light into the darkness. And all of Scripture points to that light so that you may see it and glorify God in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the light in Christ that you have given us, Lord. And we thank you for your word. These words that were recorded over thousands of years by many, many different authors in many, many different contexts and cultures. Yet, Father, by the power of your spirit, it all connects. Interwoven through the entire narrative is your story, who you are. And I pray, Lord, that as we come into the Christmas season, perhaps for the first time, some of us may see the light. And and I pray that we would glorify it, Lord, that we would turn to you and regard you as holy and that we would find our sanctuary, Father. And forgive us for the times that we've stumbled over you and tried to get around you. Lord, reveal your face to us so that we may glorify you in heaven. In your holy name I pray, amen.